Physics World. Hello, and welcome to the Physics World Weekly Podcast. I'm Hamish Johnston. Coming up in this episode, we'll meet a physicist who is part of a group that has achieved the holy grail of silicon optoelectronics. And more recently, she has been announced as a runner-up for the Nanotechnology Young Researcher Award. Then, we'll delve into the murky world of publication misconduct and learn about some of the scams that dishonest researchers use to inflate their publication lists. And we'll also discover what the physics community can do to stop this nefarious behavior. But first, did physicists working on the LHCB experiments on the Large Hadron Collider at CERN find evidence for a new particle that's not described by the standard model? The answer is a very cautious maybe. On Tuesday, at the virtual Morion Conference, which is usually held in the French Alps, Physicists working on LHCB announced that they have measured an imbalance in the rates at which the decay of the beauty quark involves the emission of electrons or muons. The standard model decrees that these decay rates should be identical, so something interesting appears to be happening. Indeed, the LHCB team suggests that the imbalance could be the result of the beauty quark decaying via a hypothetical particle called a leptoquark. And this leptoquark would couple in different ways to muons and electrons. But there is a catch. The statistical significance of the apparent imbalance is 3.1 sigma, which means that there's still a reasonable chance that the imbalance is not real, but rather a fluke measurement. Particle physicists like to have a significance of five sigma before they declare a discovery. So much more data will need to be collected and analyzed before they can tell if this is real. The LHC is currently shut down for an upgrade, but it should fire up again next year. So stay tuned for more about the leptoquark. In the meantime, you can read about the LHCB announcement on the Physics World website. Just look for the headline, Has a New Particle Called a Leptoquark Been Spotted at CERN? For decades, scientists and engineers have tried to create a silicon-based material that emits light, something that's proven extremely difficult to do because of the intrinsic properties of silicon. But last year, PhD student Elham Fadeli and colleagues in the Netherlands and Germany finally reached this holy grail. Here is Alam in conversation with Physics World's Tammy Freeman about that breakthrough and what she is planning to do next. I'm here today with Alam Fadley, a PhD student at Eindhoven University of Technology. Alam has just been awarded the runner-up prize for the Nanotechnology Young Researcher Award an award presented by the IOP publishing journal, Nanotechnology, to recognize early career brilliance. Hello, Elman. Congratulations on this award. Hello, Tommy. Thank you so much for your sweet words. <laughs> so you were nominated for the award for your research into crystal growth mechanisms, which enabled you to create high-quality hexagonal silicon germanium structures for the first time. Can you tell me a bit more about this research work? 
as we all know in the field of uh, physics of semiconductors, that efficient light emission from silicon, germanium, and their alloys has been a holy grail due to their uh, indirect band gap nature, or in a simpler word, uh, words, uh, is that they are inefficient uh, light emitters. And despite the remarkable efforts that have been exerted in the field in the past five decades, this has not been uh, yet achieved. The great thing is that recently, germanium rich silicon germanium alloys have been predicted. Uh, to exhibit a direct band gap and efficient light emission um, nature uh, by creating a hexagonal crystal structure from these materials. And this prediction has been already um, uh, predicted in the 70s uh, by DFT calculations or uh, density functional theory uh, calculations. But the main bottleneck is silicon and germanium. They crystallize in the cubic uh, crystal structure in nature, which is quite challenging to change this natural structure into the new hexagonal structure. And in our research, we have enabled that by copying the hexagonal crystal structure from a hexagonal template material that's nearly matching in structural properties to our silicon germanium materials. So we use a hexagonal uh, template of gallium arsenide nanowires, which is nearly matching in structural um, properties to silicon germanium and then we copy the crystal structure to the silicon germanium into a core shell nanowire geometry and nanowires here are really remarkable geometry of materials that can act as a unique platform for realizing these new crystal uh, structures without really the, mat uh, the material reversing back to the natural uh, cubic structure. Excellent. I mean, yeah. as you say, researchers have been striving to create light emitting silicon material for, for some 50 years. And actually, Physics World, we chose your team's work as our 2020 breakthrough of the year last year. So now this feat has been achieved, what do you think will be some applications for this material? The biggest application we are all waiting for is a laser a silicon-based laser uh, for um, communication, like on-a-chip com communication, chip-to-chip uh, uh, -chip communication. We can also use it uh, for mid-infrared detectors. We can use it for the LiDAR systems, uh, for the autonomous driving. We can use it for biological sensors, uh, solar cells, and so on. So it's really a very promising material that's also emitting uh, and detecting in a very technologically interesting uh, wavelength range. Okay, and um, while studying this new material system, you revealed a new type of crystal defect. So what did you find? Oh, yeah. Uh, first of all, as we all know, the hexagonal crystal structure in silicon germanium, it has been detected, uh, or let's say the hexagonal crystal structure uh, has been synthesized in the silicon germanium in the past few years, but not with big volumes. So when we fabricated this material in a very high quality, big volumes, we started to see a new type of crystal defects, which is called the I3 Passal stacking fold. What is an I3 Passal stacking fold? It's actually like, it appears like a partial defect. So if you look to the crystal, under a microscope, you see a partial lines running through the material. Let's think about it like a, a piece of wood. When you see cracks or when you see these uh, defect lines, it's just part of defects in these solid materials. So it's something similar in our silicon germanium. We saw these partial line um, defects in our material uh, under the microscope. And when we run uh, a very thorough investigation via uh, structural characterization techniques, 
we identified this type of defect to be uh, I3 basal stacking fault, which is happened to be a, a planar defect. That's actually a triangular defect. So it has two terminations or two partial dislocations. And between th those two partial dislocations separated by 60 degrees, there is a stacking fault or a faulty stacked atom, which is uh, stacked in this uh, I3 uh, stacking, which if you think about it, hexagonal material, it's actually not the stable natural form of the silicon germanium material. So the material tries to minimize its energy by creating uh, these defects. But we created a deep understanding of the defect such that uh, we can try to avoid it in the future and uh, fabricate high quality uh, material. Okay, yeah, I was going to ask, do these defects, would they cause a problem if they were in devices? Oh, this is a great question. Uh, we actually uh, try to do a photoluminescence characterization or let's say uh, simply optical characterization. And we saw that this material uh, does not really deteriorate the optical properties uh, of our material. Because when we theoretically uh, calculated the band structure of these materials, uh, we saw that it creates de uh, uh, defect states, but outside the band gap of the material, which in principle does not really affect properties of our material. But of course, if the material is heavily defected by this I3 defect, it will go into the wrong structure, right? So eventually, we have to be a very low defect density, let's say such that we do not affect uh, the optical properties. What are you working on now? How are you taking this research forward? So actually, I'm towards the end of my PhD. I'm defending uh, next month uh, the rest of my team members. Uh, I think now they are really working hard uh, to show lasing from the silicon germanium. And this is the next big uh, thing. Let's say if we show lasing, I think uh, this will be another breakthrough from silicon germanium. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so for now, um, uh, I'm actually almost done uh, with my research and at the end of my PhD, just finalizing the latest results and hopefully going to the next step in my career. After your PhD, do you hope to continue in this same field of research? Actually, I'm, I, I'm really, really passionate about research and science and, of course, uh, nanomaterials and physics of materials. Uh, but actually, I'm moving to work as a laser engineer research scientist in Apple in Silicon Valley in California, but hopefully staying in the field of uh, optoelectronics and uh, materials. This is really my passion. Excellent. I mean, and, and just sort of look, looking backwards a bit, you began um, with a degree in electronic engineering. So what, what prompted you to move into physics and um, to focus on materials? Okay, this really interesting question. <laughs> As a bachelor student, I'm really, really uh, fond of uh, the circuits, the electronics part, the physics. So because electronics engineering has lots of physics as well. So I, I was really like fond of all these uh, subjects. So in the third year of my bachelor degree, I traveled to the US as a part of um, a semester abroad or an exchange program. And there I was introduced to the physics of semiconductors, semiconductor devices. And to me, this was really a fascinating world. I felt like, ah, oh, this is great. I feel like I'm really exploring a hidden world, especially when you're working with electronic devices, you are working sort of a black box. As an engineer, you're really like tuning input, output, stuff like that. But with the physics, you're really uh, diving deep into the concepts, the hidden world be, uh, behind the electronic devices. And this was really like a, a fascinating world for me. So I decided after coming back from the US to back to Egypt to continue my bachelor degree, um, to focus more into the physics of semiconductors. And then I, uh, I started my master degree and it was a master of nanoscience, nanotechnology. Of course, it's still the um, concentration was nanoelectronics, by, uh, but I focused a lot more into the physics courses and the nanomaterials courses. 
And my thesis project was focusing on nanomaterials. Okay, great. And then in addition to your PhD work, I see that you've also been the African representative for the United Nations for Climate Change. So how did you get involved with that and what does it entail? Yeah, okay. So since I was young, um, I was really passionate about community development, civic engagement activities. So part of these activities was when I was still uh, also in my undergraduate uh, stage, I I was really interested in the environmental uh, issues and um, advocate for the climate change uh, activities and stuff like that. So I participated back then in a conference in Indonesia as part of the UN Climate Change uh, Program, TUNSA. And there I was nominated uh, and elected as an African Youth Advisor for the African continent for two consecutive years, 2012 to 2013. And uh, back then I was representing the African Youth uh, in the ministerial meeting, the international conferences, uh, international forum forums, uh, which is uh, concern, uh, concerned with the environmental uh, programs, issues, the climate change and stuff like that. So it was really a, a, a great experience. I learned a lot. Community development, I think it's very complementary to science and what we're doing. Everything is really going hand in hand. Absolutely. Great. Well, thanks very much for speaking to us today. And uh, good luck with the, the last stages of your PhD. Thank you so much, Tommy. It was my pleasure talking to you. Research physicists can sometimes be under great pressure to publish large numbers of papers in the scientific literature. Acquiring future research grants, attracting new students, and even job stability can depend on how many papers one publishes in peer-reviewed journals. While some argue that this publish-or-perish scenario boosts the quality of scientific research, Others are concerned that it is driving some to academic dishonesty. To talk about the evolving problem of publication misconduct, I'm joined down the line by one of my colleagues at Institute of Physics Publishing, Kim Eggleton. Hi, Kim. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Before we talk about publication misconduct, I should explain to listeners that along with bringing you Physics World, the Institute of Physics Publishing has a portfolio of more than 90 physics and related journals. And one of Kim's responsibilities is to maintain the trustworthiness of the research that we publish. So Kim, what exactly is publication misconduct? It's a really good question and with one with a really broad answer. So publication conduct is any uh, misconduct is anything that might undermine the trustworthiness of the research. So that could be right from the way the research was conducted, it could be the way the uh, research was reported, it could be the way the research was written up and how it was published, whose name it was published under. So it, it covers all kinds of things from participant recruitment right through to the actual publication of the research and how you know how the work was written up. So it's really, really broad spectrum. 
And why do people why do people participate in in publication misconduct? I mean, I I, I mentioned the the publisher parish pressure. Is that the main reason why mm. why people feel compelled to cheat? Yeah, I, it's an absolutely enormous factor. It doesn't necessarily excuse the behaviour, but it definitely goes a long way in explaining the behaviour. There is that kind of publish or perish mentality, which is just so pervasive across the entire of academia that it, it does force some researchers um, into, you know, taking shortcuts. How can they get more papers out? How can they get papers out faster? Um, how can they get more remarkable papers out as well? Um, it's that kind of unrealistic requirements or quotas relating to publication that I think is a huge, huge part of why we're seeing misconduct. Um, and I also think there's, there's another slightly related element to that, um, and it's the way that that publication is rewarded. So in a lot of cases, publication is how you're assessed in terms of your progress. Um, if you're looking you know, to progress in your career, you're going to be assessed by your publications. So there's that element of it. But then there's also the fact that some institutions and some countries have a culture where monetary publication is actually linked uh, sorry, monetary reward is actually linked to publication. So it might be um, that, you know, scientists are actually given a kind of cash payment for publication in a particular journal or, you know, a journal with a particular impact factor. So there was a study published a couple of years ago where they found that um, the reward value for publishing in one particular journal was equal to a single year's salary for a newly hired professor. Um, whereas wow. a, a reward for another, yeah, it's remarkable, isn't it? It's terrifying. Um, and actually, when you when you increase the impact factor, so if you're looking at maybe publishing in a nature or a science journal, that reward can be up to twenty times higher than their average professor salary. So that you know these these incentives are incredibly powerful um, and really difficult. You know, you can't say that that's not having an impact and actually you know that there is considerable risk in committing misconduct but when the rewards are that significant uh, you know you can see the kind of conversation someone might be having internally and when they're you know deciding should I do it should I not what are the chances of being discovered what are the consequences you know if that payment is made on publication, even if I'm found to have committed that misconduct in a year's time, does that get taken away from me? And you know, it's risk versus reward. So there, there are a lot of kind of systemic issues at play. This is not about some people are good, some people are bad, and just, you know, the bad ones are the people who commit misconduct. There is a huge amount of um, underlying issues and factors that are, that are forming part of this whole problem. Wow, I mean that that is a lot of money. You could really see why somebody might be tempted. So Kim, we we were chatting uh, earlier uh, before the interview about, you know, whether this misconduct is on the increase. And and you were saying it's, it's difficult to tell. Um it might be because publishers are more aware and and getting better at at sort of sniffing it out, is that right? That's right. Yeah. So we it's really difficult. We can measure in a sense the rate of misconduct in that we can measure how many articles are retracted, um, how many corrections are published. What we can't always do, at least not easily, is measure why those articles are being retracted and corrected, at least not kind of in a, in a straightforward automated fashion. 
because of course articles are retracted and corrected for completely innocent reasons you know it's we would never want to discourage scientists who've discovered a flaw with the research not to address that and and make sure that readers are made aware of that so looking just looking at the rate of retractions for example isn't a clear indicator of misconduct you need to get into that data and understand what that's reflecting we've also like you say got to bear in mind that our detection methods have increased remarkably in the last 20 years there is now software that is you know to detect plagiarism there are increasing numbers of software on the market that looks at image duplication or manipulation so our detection rates are getting a lot better and i think there's also been a slight shift in mindset Certainly in my kind of life cycle, lifetime within um, academic publishing, whereas, you know, owning up to misconduct might, for a journal might have felt like something a bit icky and we want to hide it under the carpet. And, you know, it, does it reflect badly on the, the journal that we've allowed or not dis, not discovered this? And actually, I think that mindset, mindset, mindset sorry, has really shifted to a much more healthy and open and transparent place now where we're saying, you know what, these things happen because we're dealing with humans and humans are not perfect. And these incentive structures that we just talked about are encouraging in, in some instances humans to you know exhibit this kind of bad behavior. And what we're trying to do as those um, holders of the scientific record, the protectors of the scientific record, is be open and honest about when that's happened so that readers can make an informed decision. We talk a lot about reproducibility, which is a word that's incredibly difficult to say, but also very difficult to, to ensure when it's, um, when it's there in an article. And when scientists have either, you know, made a mistake, found an error or committed some kind of misconduct. It's really important that we're open with readers when that's happened so that anyone who's using that science, that study, that methodology to further their own work, they're doing it in an informed way. Um, so I think that shifting publishers mindset to say, you know, we we have a responsibility to make sure the scientific record is correct and up to date. And therefore, I, you know, I think it's really encouraging that more and more journals are open and honest about the numbers of retractions that they're dealing with and why those retractions are occurring as well. Um, I would say 20 years ago, it might have been more commonplace for journals to just say, the article has been retracted. We're not going to go into detail about why. That's not responsible publishing. We need to be giving as much information as possible about what the problems are so that readers can take the bits of the work that's valid, but also discount the bits of the work that aren't. So, Kim, you, you recently gave a, a fascinating talk um, at, the, at the virtual March meeting of the American Physical Society about misconduct. And I have to say, I was, I was really, really interested in the <laughs> sort of very clever and devious ways that, that, that people cheat the system. Um, I mean, w w one of the, uh, uh, of the scams that you talked about was gift authorship. How does that work? What's that? So gift authorship is essentially including someone on the author list of a paper that doesn't deserve their place there. Um, and to get to the nub of, well, give me an example, you, you kind of have to define, well, what, do, what does authorship entail? And that in itself is almost a debatable issue. Um, there are some really great guidelines um, from IJ, I'm going to get their acronym wrong now, I think it's IJCME. Um, has some fantastic guidelines on what constitutes authorship. We as a publishing house have our own kind of definition. Um, 
And we say that it's somebody who's made an intellectual contribution to the article. Mm. There's a really great taxonomy that we encourage authors to use um, if they're thinking about listing contributorship, which, I, again, I would encourage. That's called credit. It's basically it's a, it's a taxonomy of the different ways in which somebody might contribute to a piece of research. Um, so it could be that they you know, did some of the experimentation. It could be did, that they did some of the writing up. Um, there, there are 14 different categories. But ultimately, gift authorship is including someone that didn't contribute in any way. And actually, um, we we don't see it that often, partly because it's so difficult to detect. There's no way for us as a publisher to understand, well, who, you know, who did that test? Who did that lab work? Who wrote that section? We don't know. We're never going to know. So we rely on the kind of honesty of our authors um, to only include people who have made that intellectual contribution. But interestingly, there are some, and we've seen copies of these contracts, some early career researcher contracts that have obviously been put in place by their institution that says, you know, you need to give your supervisor authorship credit on any articles that you produce during your time here. Um, you need, you, it, it may even go to the extent you need to give your supervisor first, you know, first named author position, last named author position, regardless of that supervisor's contribution. We all know, you know, supervisor relationships can be amazing and fantastic, you know, in terms of contribution, but they can also, not not all of them are like that. Some of them are, are pretty unhelpful. Um, you might have a supervisor that you've only met with a couple of times that really doesn't engage with you very much. And yet, because of your contract with your institution, you're still obliged to give that person first named, you know, place on your article and as a publisher it's really difficult for us to know well how can you know we can't really overrule the institutional contract that you've entered into but morally and ethically it doesn't feel quite right so some, that, that's a classic example of when gift authorship is not a very clear-cut issue to resolve um, in some instances though gift authorship is really really obvious um, someone has has you know, struggling maybe with their research output and they've asked someone, you've got a paper coming out, can you pop my name on it? Doesn't matter where, middle of the, middle of the place is fine. Um, I just, I need to boost my numbers. And they said, yeah, that's fine. And, and pop them in. Um, so it, you know, it probably happens a lot more than we're aware of, but it's certainly something that I'm seeing um, a number of examples of pretty regularly. And and something you mentioned um, in your talk at the at the March meeting was that the, this idea of authorship for sale. Sometimes people actually actually mm. pay to have their names popped into uh, to yeah. a paper. Now, d does that happen at where where a, a legitimate research group does the research and then I don't know asks people if they'd like to pay to be on the author list? Yeah. Is it that blatant? <laughs> yeah. It is. It really is. It's it's terrifying. Um, so the principle of how authorship for sale seems to work, and I should say as someone who's not involved in obviously selling this product, um, I'm I'm obviously someone who's trying to identify when this product's kind of these services have been used, is that a group of legitimate authors with some legitimate work have received either an accept decision on an article or they're at least in that kind of advanced revision stage. Um, their work or the, the fact that their article is about to be accepted or has just been accepted is then publicized on specific websites that act as basically websites offering authorship for sale. So um, someone say I'm interested in getting my name on a, on a paper 
in anything. Um, I can go on this website and I can search against, you know, papers that are about to be accepted. And I go, okay, great. There's a paper here on, I don't know, whatever field of research I'm in. Um, I can see the price. I can see how many authorship spots are available. And I can quite literally put in my PayPal details and my credit card details and buy myself a spot on that paper, despite not knowing the authors, not being involved in the work. It's purely a, a, a financial transaction. Um, but that's it. I'm on. I'm a I'm a paper. And the authors of the of the legitimate paper then get in touch with the publishing house the journal and say oh we you know we forgot to include Kim Eggleton on this work um please can you add her in as an author in this spot um and and the journals sometimes say yes sometimes say no um it's something that we've really stepped up our checking and our um and our kind of preventative steps to try and make sure this doesn't happen on any of our own journals so any authors that are included beyond submission um, now re we we ha we require an explanation to be provided, and we scrutinise that explanation. And we quite often go back for more information, more detail. We you know we want to be assured in some way that there's evidence that these people have worked together, um, so that we're not um, party to this problem, um, which in my experience seems to be on the increase. And there's been a few articles recently in a number of kind of industry magazines that. Um, suggest that it's on the increase because people are desperate. And I think partly the pandemic is a factor here where people have been locked out of their labs for such a long time. And yet that those criteria for um, tenure or promotion haven't changed yet to reflect that. And so people are still being held against this incredible quota for publication. And yet, you know, they, they physically can't go and do the experimental work. So they don't have six papers sat there that they're working on. Um, and so, you know, a quick and easy way of doing it is, yeah, I'll pay $350 to get my name on an article, especially when you think about those monetary rewards we talked about. If you're potentially looking at something, you know, a, a bonus that's about a year's worth of your salary against a $350 payment to get your article, uh, uh, your name on an article, mm -mm. I can see why people would make that decision. It doesn't justify it, but it explains it. And, and another uh, another sort of scam that I thought, um, you, you know, I suppose would be highly relevant for us because peer review is what we do. You know, it's what we do best. We're mm -hmm. very proud of our peer review system at Institute of Physics Publishing. But but people actually manipulate the peer review system to get a, a, a paper published. How How does that work? What do they do? So we've seen this, um, thankfully, not much on our own journals, but um, part of my job is kind of keeping up with the literature and what our um, counterparts or other publishers are experiencing and talking about. And um, peer review manipulation is essentially where somebody's maybe submitted a legitimate piece of work, but they're encouraging or forcing the peer review to be compromised in some way. And so the most common way of doing that is when you submit a paper, you're usually using the publisher's submission system. And a lot of those submission systems have a place for you to recommend reviewers because it's really difficult to find reviewers to do um, to review work. And it might be that an editor is struggling. OK, you know, the author suggested this person might be really good. I'm going to use them. This person may not be a legitimate person at all. 
so that's one way it's done is that they're, they're putting in a completely fake name with a fake email address. It may be that the name is legitimate, but the email address is not. So for example, hmm. you know, Kim Eggleton's been added. Kim Eggleton is a real person, but the email address is, you know, Kim Agleton. There's just one digit that's not quite right there. And the email is being has been created by the author of the paper. So the author is then going in providing their own review. Um, obviously, that's glowing. Um, and the paper is accepted. So there's, there's the suggesting reviewers um, is the most common kind of part of it, uh, the most common way this is done. Another one that seems to be new as it were, um, seems to be special issues, which is essentially a group of papers. So people are contacting journals saying, I've got a great idea for a special issue. I'm happy to be a guest editor. I've got a couple of colleagues who are willing to be guest editors. Um, we, we think we can get a number of papers on this. Are you interested? Most journals, you know, provided the subject area looks good and the, and the names involved look good. Yep. Great. Thanks. That sounds fantastic. What's happening is that they're using legitimate names of big scientists, but with the, again, the emails are not quite right. So it might be that there's a digit wrong. It's not their institutional email address that's been used. It's a Gmail address or, you know, it's some kind of commercial email address. So not only are those scientists not involved, they're also, um, then their names are being published potentially you know, against their will without their permission. The papers themselves have not been peer reviewed because these, these scammers are doing no peer review, but, you know, saying they have done. Um, and ultimately, entire special issues are being published that have gone through no peer review whatsoever. And we know of three publishers um, that have already retracted entire issues because they've discovered this was what's happened wow, to them. It's terrifying. <laughs> as, you know, as, as a publisher um, and, uh, and as someone that, you know, we, we are only interested in getting good science out there. We don't, you know, it's really difficult to monitor and, and stay ahead. Like any kind of crime, misconduct is like they're, they're thinking of new and different ways to manipulate the system we don't, you know, they think of them first. We're always on the back foot. So we're trying as, you know, as fast as we can to try and find ways, whether it's through technology or, or just, you know, extra checks in house um, to try and make sure that these kind of scams are not happening in our own journals. But it's a massive challenge because once I think that, you know, once somebody finds a good way in, Word spreads really, really quickly. And before you know it, you've got a really big issue on your hands. So you have to be fast. You have to be diligent. Um, and unfortunately, you know, for us as publishers, that takes time and money. Um, it's something that not all of us are blessed with. Um, but we we have to do it to maintain that, you know, sanctity of the of the scientific record. Now, peer review is done by the scientific community. Um and, and IOP Publishing has a, a peer review excellence program that offers reviewers training. W what does that program involve and, and, and does it help them uh, spot that, this sort of misconduct? That was one of the key factors when we put this piece of training program together. We really wanted to make sure that ethics was a key component of it because it's such a pervasive issue and there is a huge amount we as publishers can do but we are also reliant on our reviewers those people who know the science who know the field 
they're more likely to spot some instances of publication misconduct. We're more likely to spot other instances. Um, so training our reviewers and encouraging our reviewers to know what to look for and be aware of the most common forms of misconduct is a fantastic kind of piece of weaponry in our fight against publication misconduct. So when we created this program, one of the modules, there's three modules in the online training program, and one of them is completely dedicated to ethics. So it's giving researchers a kind of foundation of what are the common types of misconduct that you as a reviewer might identify and um, and encouraging you on encouraging you to speak out and how you know how to speak out, reassuring reviewers that their anonymity will always be protected. We're members of COPE, the Committee for Publication Ethics, and that's a really key part of membership is that you are guaranteeing anybody who kind of raises alarm bells. Um, that their their anonymity is completely protected. We will never reveal anybody's name. So as a peer reviewer, you can feel completely assured that not only will we keep you anonymous, we will also take your concerns seriously and we will look into them. Um, so educating our reviewers is a massive, massive part of tackling misconduct. There's only so much we can do. A lot of what publishers can tackle is the kind of fake authorship, the manipulation of the peer review itself. Um, but when it comes to actually identifying the problems with the science, that's when we're relying on the scientific community. So educating the community is so, so important. So what exactly does the, the program entail? So the training program itself is, um, there are a couple of different ways in which someone can engage with the training. We have a program of workshops where um, it's uh, a interactive online workshop where participants can hear from experts in the scientific community about what good peer review look like um, and actually work through examples in real time together and they will receive accreditation and what we're calling trusted reviewer status. Um, so there's the workshop way of participating in the program. The other part is the online training, um, which is state-of-the-art, just launched last week. Um, and this is fully self-contained. It takes around two hours. So it's broken down into three modules, like I said, one of which is about ethics. They can go onto our website. They can do it in their own time. Um, and the training is kind of the first part of getting that trusted reviewer accreditation. Once you've completed the online training, we will then match the person that's completed it to a manuscript, a real manuscript currently in the submission process. And we will review and rate the review that the, uh, that the training person has provided. So we'll give them feedback. Um, and if the review itself scores highly enough, then that person will have effectively completed their training and they will then be given that um, certification, that trusted reviewer status. So like I say, we only launched the online training portal last week, but so far um, uptake seems really, really good. Um, the, one of the reasons, aside from obviously our own our own interest in our own interest in educating reviewers, it was also about listening to the peer review community and actually asking them, well, what kind of services could we give you that would help you? And what we hear consistently about peer review itself is that people want recognition, they want training, and they want feedback. So hopefully, this program 
blends all three of those things together in that whether you choose the workshop element or the online element, you're receiving the training, you're getting feedback on the review, and you're also getting that recognition. If you complete the training, you get that trusted reviewer status. And, and where can members of the physics community who, who would like to be reviewers, like to take part in the peer review process, where, where can they learn more about this peer review excellence program? So you can go to our website. If you just go to ioppublishing.org, um, there's a banner ad on there that you can use. Alternatively, just Google um, peer review excellence IOP and that'll take you right to the page. Um, so you can do the online training. Like I said, you can sign up today and do it now. You can do it in your own time. Um, or you can sign up for one of our workshops. We do multiple workshops every week. These are usually organized um, by institutions. So they're invite-only workshops. You can't just sign up and kind of join one. Um, but if you're interested in maybe hosting one at your institution or you know within your own sort of research group, then get in touch with us and let us know. And we're more than happy to talk to you about how we could set that up for you. So thanks. Thanks for talking about, about this, Kim. I mean, it's, it, it is rather unfortunate that that people feel compelled to do this sort of misconduct but i have to say it must be a fascinating job trying to to keep on top of it all it is absolutely fascinating is the right word um it's exhausting at times and it can kind of make you feel like oh the world is a dreadful place um but it's really really interesting and i get to kind of play detective every day i can come to work and i and i get to you know who said what and who did what and it's fascinating it's also really collaborative as, as a space there are publishers people think of publishers you know they they don't work together they're competing in publication misconduct we work together loads I'm constantly in contact with people at other publishers and at institutions as well to understand what's happened in a particular case if there are you know implications that maybe have affected other articles or other researchers um so there's a there's a real kind of community sense about the work that we do in publication misconduct and some true heroes in this space um there are there are people who will almost spend their entire time just working as like research sleuths so elizabeth bick um, I would tip my hat to her. She's a superstar. She um, she's now a, a freelance consultant working in this area. She specialises in image duplication, and I would really encourage anybody to look her up on Twitter because she posts um, little challenges every now and then, so you can go along and see if you can spot, you know, which image has been duplicated. Um, it is absolutely fascinating. Like I say, not always the most uplifting work to do but really, really important and definitely really interesting. I wouldn't change it. I really love my job. <laughs> well, that's fascinating. Well, we'll, we'll let you get back uh, to your detective work today. Thanks. Thanks for being on the podcast, Kim. <laughs> Thanks so much for having me. Really appreciate it. You can find out more about the Peer Review Excellence Program on the IOP Publishing website. Just go to ioppublishing.org peer-review-excellence. I'm afraid that's all the time we have for this week's podcast. Thanks to Elham Fadley, Kim Eggleton, and Tammy Freeman for joining me today. And a special thanks to our producer, Callum Jelf. We'll be back again next week, but in the meantime do check out the March edition of the Physics World Stories podcast. 
which charts the scientific triumphs and sad demise of the Arecibo Radio Telescope in Puerto Rico. Host Andrew Glester is joined by three leading astronomers to talk about the iconic telescope's myriad roles in science and popular culture, including the search for alien life and as a setting for a James Bond film. You can find that episode in the podcast section of the Physics World website. Just look for the headline, Arecibo Observatory, a scientific giant that fell to Earth. Physics World